the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Real love is calling, listen, truth opens up your eyes. Mercy is waiting for you with every sunrise. So there's a speed limit sign, 35. Now that's the external motivator. Here is the sign. This is what the law says. This is what you're supposed to do, okay? And I'm motivated by that number, all right, especially if there's anybody in my rearview mirror that looks like they could do me harm. You know what I'm talking about. But l- let me tell you what a greater motivator is. When I have my granddaughter in the backseat, then I'm more motivated to drive just like I should because it's, it's a greater internal motivation in my car than the external sign. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Ephesians. Most drivers know that feeling. You're going an undisclosed amount over the speed limit. And then you see the police cruiser up ahead, and the brakes are applied in an effort to get down to that posted speed. It's not a sense of guilt that slows you down. It's a concern over getting caught. As Pastor Gary illustrates in today's message, righteous living should not be motivated by a fear of being found out. Instead, when Christ is living in you, your motivation should be to bring Him glory. Knowing that sin breaks His heart and harms your relationship should be incentive enough. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Ephesians chapter 4 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. We're going to be Ephesians chapter 4 tonight. So take your Bibles and go to Ephesians chapter 4. This, this section break here from chapter 3 to 4 is an important break in the letter to the church of Ephesus because, as we've been mentioning, first three chapters, uh, Paul is establishing the fact that we, what God has done for us and the position that we have in him. And so all through chapter 1, he talks about how we were chosen, how, how he loved us and how he redeemed us and how he predestined us and how he saved us and how he sealed us. And he goes on and on and on about all these wonderful things that God has done. This is an important point. Please don't miss this. First half of this letter is all about what God has done. Because if that foundation is not laid first, then what you must do and what I must do, how we must live out our faith will be greatly hindered if we don't understand first what God has done. So this is that break right here. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 about our position, what God has done for us. Chapters 4, 5, and 6, now he shifts. 
And it's about practice. It's about how we are to live, what we are to do in response to what God has done for us. You know, the reason why a lot of Christians have a hard time living out their faith is because they want to know what are the rules I got to live by now that I'm a Christian. And there's, there's something to be said about an external motivator, but there's something greater to be said about an internal motivator. What do I mean? What I mean is, what Paul is trying to get to is, don't just start your Christian faith by looking at a long list of do's and don'ts. Now, the Bible does have plenty of do's and don'ts. There's no question about that. I'm not pretending like that doesn't exist. But if your motivation is the list of what to do and what not to do, it's going to be harder to live out your faith. But if you understand the internal motivation, which is to say, this is what Paul has been building from chapters 1, 2, and 3. Here's what God has done for you. Here's how much he loves you. This is how he has redeemed you. He has chosen you. He has sealed you. All of these things, it becomes a greater motivator to live out your Christian life. So that, yes, the do's and don'ts are intact, but greater than that is the internal motivation. Let me illustrate it this way. Speed limit out here on Sickland Road, is it it 35? Okay, I'm not even sure myself. Uh, Okay, so there's a speed limit sign, 35. Now, that's the external motivator. Here is the sign. This is what the law says. This is what you're supposed to do, okay? And I'm motivated by that number, all right, especially if there's anybody in my rearview mirror that looks like they could do me harm. You know what I'm talking about. But let me tell you what a greater motivator is. When I have my granddaughter in the backseat, then I'm more motivated to drive just like I should. Because it's, it's a greater internal motivation in my car than the external sign. Okay, so Paul is building this as, as the case for how to best be able to live out your life. You want to know how to live your life? That's chapter 4, 5, and 6. But the greater motivation to living out your life for Christ is going to be if you understand what God has done for you. So he spends three chapters talking about that. Laying the foundation. Here's what God has done for you. Here's how much he loves you. Here's an understanding of his grace. Here's what mercy is all about. Here's how we're saved. It's all what God has initiated. It's all what God has done. Now, we are to live our lives in response to what God has done. And that, if you, if you and I will focus on that, that will go a long way to helping us to live out our Christian life more so than the do's and don'ts. Now, Paul's going to get into some do's and don'ts here in chapter 4. Again, we're not saying that the do's and don'ts don't have validity. What we're saying is the greater impact, the greater motivator for you and I to live a holy life is when we're focused on what God has done for us. Now, I I want you to actually practice this, okay? When you are tempted to sin, I want you to focus on and stop and just think, Wait a minute, what has God done for me? Wait a minute, how much does God love me? Wait a minute, what about the cross and all the Christ has done for me? Take take just two seconds to begin to focus on that. Next time you're about ready to flirt with that guy or that girl at the office who's married or you're married, you stop and first think, oh, what God has done for me on the cross. Next time you're tempted to, to look at pornography, you stop and think, oh, what God has done for me on the cross. Okay, That will go a longer way to helping to motivate you to live a life of holiness before God than just the fact that God says, don't do this and don't do that. It's what he has done for us. Case in point, Titus, in Titus chapter 2, it talks about how, Titus 2.11, for the grace of God, 
that brings salvation has appeared to all men, it teaches us, what does? God's grace. It teaches us, it motivates us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So that's that same idea, the same concept. It's the grace of God that teaches me. It's the grace of God that motivates me. When I focus on how gracious God is and merciful and loving God is, those things motivate me, teach me to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. So that's where we are here, chapter 4. Now there are two main themes to chapter 4. And, and these two themes here are unity and maturity. Unity and maturity. We're talking about unity within the church, unity within the body of Christ, and spiritual maturity. So Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul writes, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, remember now he's a prisoner in Rome, but he doesn't consider that to be the real identity. He's a prisoner for the Lord. He is a bondservant of Christ. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. If you have a King James Bible, it says to walk worthy. He's going to teach us now how to walk. This is chapter 4. This is in response to the first three chapters. He says, I'm going to urge you now how to live a life worthy, how to walk in a worthy way of the calling you have received. Verse 2, he says, be completely humble. Circle that word. There'll be a lot of words here to circle. It's going to be a challenging section here. Be completely humble and gentle. You can circle that word too. Be patient. There's a good word. Bearing with one another in, in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. You can circle that. Unity. Peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Okay, so he opens chapter 4 here by talking about, again, one of the two main themes here is going to talk about unity. And, and, and he's recognizing that there, is, there are a lot of differences in, in the body of Christ. He uses that term body, meaning the church. Every local church and the church collectively as a whole has a lot of differences. They're different. They're, I mean, just look around. Look around at people. Look, I mean, right now, just look around at people next to you. Okay, They look different. They are different. Uh, we think differently. Some of us speak different languages. If, if you are male and you are female, there's some differences obviously there. If you're married, you understand those differences, don't you? She talks womanese, you, ch- you talk manese, and a lot of times you don't understand what you guys are saying to each other. It makes no sense. There's a lot of differences in the body of Christ. There's national differences, racial differences. There are denominational differences if you've come from different churches, cultural differences, all kinds of differences. Now, you know how different life is even in your own family? You ever got together for a family reunion and found out it wasn't much of a reunion? I mean, you know what I'm talking about? Everybody got together and just like, when is this going to be done? You know, because people started fighting. They started talking about things. They were bickering. And, you know, there's all this kind of stuff that's going on. Well, multiply that. Every church has its share of differences. And, and so Paul recognizes this. We need to recognize this. And there's richness in the diversity of Christ. But now we got to understand how we're we supposed to get along with all our differences. And so he emphasizes the idea of unity and 
unity is going to come about because we strive to keep it. Now notice he says here in verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit, not create it. Okay, God creates unity within the church through his spirit. It is our responsibility to recognize it and to keep it. The unity of the spirit is a work of God. Let me, let me read, for example, out of Romans chapter 15. If you want to go backwards, you can a little bit or just listen. Out of Romans chapter 15, Paul would say a similar thing in Romans 15, 5 to 7. This is, what he, this is what he writes. He says, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ Accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. So very similar language there that Paul writes in the letter to, to the Romans, so the, to the church in Rome. So the idea is that unity is something we have to work on. Don't take unity for granted. Now it is a providential thing that God does by his spirit. But because of our flesh, we can get in there and mess it up. So that's why the exhortation here is in Ephesians chapter 4, you have to keep this. God creates it by the work of his spirit. This is, this is a thing that God does providentially. I mean, you know, it's got to take the work of God to bring a diversity of people together who actually love each other and get along with each other and accept one another in spite of our differences. And that we cherish our differences because our differences add to the richness of the body of Christ. But that is a God work and it has to be maintained because we recognize it and we keep it. We have to work hard at this. We have to work hard at it. You know how many churches? Churches have church splits all the time. Now, thankfully, in, in 20, over 25 years now at Cornerstone, we've never had a church split. I can tell you, though, that's only because of the grace of God. That's not been because of anything we've, you know, designed or engineered. It is something we've prayed about regularly in our staff meetings. We pray for unity in our staff. We pray for unity in the church. And from time to time, we talk about it like what I'm doing right now. That we have to work hard at staying unified because the enemy loves to get into every church, stir up dissension, stir up trouble, create bickering, create all these kind of things, a strife. And some of you have come out of churches where those things have happened. Some churches don't even exist anymore because they've imploded from within. And it's usually over the most ridiculous disagreements. And then the enemy takes root of that. And then it becomes this mountain, this monstrosity of division and discord, and, and then it does damage to the body of Christ. So don't ever take unity for granted. Always look at how you can be a part of that unifying work of God's spirit in order to keep what we have, recognize it's by the grace of God we have that spirit of unity, and let's do our part to maintain it. And how we maintain it, he says there in verse 2, be completely humble and gentle. We have to take responsibility for ourselves being humble and gentle. We have to be patient with each other. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Okay, don't get impatient. You know, when you look at what he tells us to do here, the exhortations, verses 2 and 3 suggest that the tendency for impatience and intolerance and divisiveness lie just beneath the surface. And therefore, we have to be vigilant about this in the body of Christ that we're going to do our part, as far as it depends on us, to each remain humble and gentle, patient with each other, bearing with each other in love in order for us to maintain what he says in verse 3, 
the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. And then he emphasizes here in verse 4 that though there are differences among us, there is unity in terms of one body, that is one church body overall. A lot of local churches make up one church body, one church, one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called one Lord. We don't worship a multitude of gods. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So, Very important emphasis. He starts out by saying, now, in response to what God has done for you, chapters 1, 2, and 3, I want you to work hard to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace in your local church, and that'll come because you're humble, you're gentle, you're patient with each other, you bear with each other in love. Obviously, he's addressing this because there is the potential for disunity, intolerance, for lack of love, for bickering, and for fighting. So we have to work on this and make sure we maintain this with God's help. Keep reading with me. Verse 7, he says, But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, When he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. He's quoting from Psalm 68. Some of your Bibles have a footnote there. And then he goes on, verse verse 9, it's a parenthetical Question here, he says, what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Okay, let's pause there for a moment because he's going to make a sharp right turn here. And And he's talking still actually along the same theme. He's talking about unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. But now he starts talking here about Christ ascending, descending, what does it mean about leading captives in his train, giving gifts to men? All right, so this passage here ties into a few other passages. If you've been with us in our Bible study through Luke 16, right here in Ephesians 4, and then also in 1 Peter chapter 3, we're going to tie together some information that some of you have been around Cornerstone long enough, you're going to be familiar with this. Uh, But this is an important passage that Paul inserts here in the letter to the Ephesians that talks about really what happened to Jesus after he was crucified. It also helps to answer, when we tie all these passages of Scripture together, what happened to saints, what happened to people who died before Jesus went to the cross. Are they in heaven? Where are they now? What about the whole Catholic doctrine of purgatory? Okay, was Jesus in hell for the three days that he was dead, or was he in heaven, or was he in paradise? What are those differences when he ascended? Anyway, the first thing to understand is, before Jesus Christ died on the cross, there was one place that everybody went when they died, their souls. The souls of every person, whether they were a follower of God or not, every person went to what the Old Testament refers to as the grave, The New Testament sometimes refers to it also as the grave or even uses the Greek word Hades for hell. There was one location where everybody went, whether you followed God and the the righteous requirement of the sacrificial system or not. And that was the place called Hades in Greek or Sheol in Hebrew. Now, that one place, however, was divided into two sections. One section was called the place of torment. This part of Hades or Sheol is the torment side. And everybody who did not have a righteous 
relationship with God through the requirements of the law, who denied God, rebelled against God, and didn't practice the sacrificial system, they went to the torment side. Okay? The other side is called paradise, or in Luke chapter 16, it's called Abraham's side, the side that Abraham was on versus the torment side. And in Luke chapter 16, Jesus is talking about this story about a rich man and a beggar. The beggar's name later in the story at the end of chapter 16 of Luke, his name was Lazarus. And it tells us in Luke 16 that between the torment side and the paradise side, there was a great chasm. There was a great gulf. And no one could cross from one side to the other. The paradise side is where everyone went, their souls went, who believed in God through the sacrificial system. This is before Jesus dies on the cross. Those who believed in God and were righteous because of the sacrificial system, they went to the paradise side. Those who rebelled against God went to the torment side. And there was a chasm or a gulf that divided the two. Everybody with me so far? In Luke 16, it tells us that you could... converse across the chasm, but you couldn't cross it. And Jesus, in telling the story in Luke 16, says that the, the rich man, who was an unrighteous guy, not because of his money, but they just because he was an unrighteous man who didn't believe in God, didn't worship God, he went to the torment side. Lazarus, who was the beggar, and he was a righteous man, he went to the paradise side, and it tells us that the rich guy, we'll just call him rich, all right? Rich, Richard, on the torment side, is yelling over the chasm, to Abraham, who's there with Lazarus, as well as other righteous people. And Rich yells across the chasm, and he says, Father Abraham, you have many sons. Father Abraham, many sons had Father Abraham. Anyway, uh, if you grew up in Sunday school, you got that joke. But anyway, he says, he says, Abraham, he says, send Lazarus back to my family to warn them about torment. He's actually asking Abraham, send Lazarus, let him rise from the dead and go back to warn my family about this place of torment that I'm in. And Abraham responds back over the chasm and he says, they have Moses and the prophets. They have Moses and the prophets. What's his answer? His answer was, they have the scriptures. They have the truth. They know the truth. And Rich says back to Abraham, yeah, 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 but they'll believe if a guy comes to them from the dead. That'll get their attention. And Abraham says, if they do not believe Moses and the prophets, even if someone rises from the dead, they will not believe. What, that is a strong emphasis on the power of Scripture, that there, there's nothing more powerful than the truth of Scripture to bring somebody to the saving knowledge of who Christ is. And so Abraham says, no, can't, can't happen. But we learn from that Luke 16 passage that you, you might be able to have conversation across, but, but you can't go across. And so there, there is this paradise side separated from the torment side. Remember who else went to the paradise side? Luke chapter 23, verse 43. Who did Jesus promise would be with him in paradise? The thief on the cross. One of the thieves who acknowledged that he was a righteous man. Jesus turned and said, today you shall be with me in paradise. Now that gives us a clue as to where Jesus went when he died. Jesus says, today you shall be with me in paradise. Now, this whole, this whole location of where all souls went, whether you were unrighteous or righteous, is again called Hades in the Greek or Sheol in the Hebrew. So in your, in, in your Hebrew, in, in the Old Testament, 
A lot of times it'll say hell, it'll say the grave. New Testament will say Hades or hell or the grave. We're talking about one location known by different names. So Hades in the Greek, Sheol in the Hebrew, and therefore Hades translates hell. That's all we have time for today on Cornerstone Connection. Pastor Gary will have more to share from Ephesians next time. But right now, we'd like to tell you how you can continue studying God's Word on your own. Did you know that you can learn from the Bible? You don't need a degree or years of study to understand what God has to say. Just open up the Scripture and ask the Holy Spirit to open your eyes and heart to the message printed there. If you'd like some additional resources to help with your personal time studying the Bible, we've compiled a list for you on our website at cornerstoneconnection.cc. Just search under the Teachings tab. While you're there, feel free to listen to more of Pastor Gary's messages in Ephesians or in the other books of the Bible he's explored. You can also subscribe to our podcast or take Cornerstone Connection anywhere with the mobile app to listen to commentary on the Word. Do you live in or near Leesburg, Virginia? If so, we want to meet you. Come join us at Cornerstone Chapel to spend time in fellowship, worship, and studying Scripture together. Your presence is most welcome. Find out more at our website. Again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope you'll tune in again for our next edition of Cornerstone Connection. No place to go, but still you know, still you know you're not alone. General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.